We are looking at Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72, and verses 73 to 80. The main idea of verses 65 to 72 is found, I think, in verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Um, before we get into that, though, there, uh, we should notice that one of the, the most prominent word in this stanza is the word good, which is not communicated too well by our translation. The word occurs six times, and five of those times it occurs as the first word in the verse. So I'll give you a translation of those verses that puts that word good at the beginning. The first one is uh, verse 65. Good you have done to your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Then verse 66. Good judgment and knowledge teach me, for I believe your commandments. Then verse 68. Good you are, and do good, teach me your statutes. Verse 71, good it is for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And verse 72, good to me is the law of your mouth, more than thousands of gold and silver. So it's on goodness that the psalmist focuses here. But notice as he look, as you look at those uses of the word uh, good here that it's associated in every case with a somewhat different idea. So in the first place, it's good, the goodness of the Lord's dealings with us. In the second place, verse 66, it's associated with good judgment and knowledge, uh, the good judgment and knowledge which the psalmist seeks. In the third place, it's associated with God, you are good, and with his works, you do good. In the fourth place, it's associated with his affliction. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. And in the fifth place, it's associated with his law. Good is the law of your mouth. We're going to uh, look at uh, really three things in this stanza. We're not going to take the verses in order. But look at three things in this stanza, uh, the three main ideas, I think. And the first of those ideas is certainly the idea of affliction. He mentions his affliction in verses 67 and 71. But he also describes this affliction in somewhat more detail in verse 69 and adds a comment about those who are afflicting him in verse 70. So we're going to look at verses 69 and 70, first of all. Verse 69 says, The proud have forged a lie against me. If you look at the English Standard Version, you will see that the English Standard Version has the proud have smeared me with lies. So they translate that word, that the New King James has as forged instead as smeared. And I think that's the better translation. And there's a little bit different focus between those two words. If you think about the word forged, it, think, it 
suggests the idea of uh, carefulness in crafting a lie, carefulness in forging this lie against him. But if you think about the word smear, then the idea is more that they are telling numerous lies against him and that these lies are doing damage to his reputation. I think that's really what he's getting at here. They have smeared him with lies like a man covers a wall with plaster. And by smearing him with lies in this way, they have uh, covered over his true character in the eyes of others. They have so ruined his reputation that people can't even see to his true character anymore. What they see is this um, reputation that has been forced on him by his enemies. And he calls these uh, enemies the proud again. That's the same word that we've been talking about in preceding stanzas. These are those who are insolent, presumptuous, rebellious, willful. All those ideas are contained in that word proud. And they are proud, of course, or presumptuous or insolent, as some would have it, because they are attacking a servant of the Lord, exalting themselves against a servant of the Lord. Now, because we've been relating all of this, uh, these uh, stanzas of the psalm to our Lord Jesus Christ, I think we should think about that statement uh, as a statement of our Lord Jesus Christ about his suffering at the hands of his enemies. The proud have smeared me with lies. And you can see this especially, of course, at his trial before the council of the Jews and then before Pontius Pilate. You read in connection in the Gospels, in connection with his trial before the council, that they brought many false witnesses against him. And the Gospels don't go into detail about what these false witnesses were saying against him. Uh, There are only two things that they tell us about the words of these false witnesses. First, some of the witnesses said, uh, he said that he would destroy the temple in three days and build it up again, destroy the temple and build it again in three days. And that was, of course, a twisting, a perversion of his words. That's not what he had said. He had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. He had not said, I will destroy this temple. And in the second place, of course, they had lied about him when they rejected his claim to be the Son of God. They said, you lied when you said that. So that that was just two examples of the uh, kinds of false witness that were being brought against him at the council. But when you get to the trial before Pontius Pilate, you see a lot more of this. In connection with that part of his trial, you read in the Gospels that they accused him of many things. There are a whole series of things then that they accused him of in the Gospels. You can look them up for yourselves. I'm not going to give you the references here. But they said to him, said of him, he perverts the people, he forbids to pay taxes to Caesar, he claims that he is a king, he stirs up the people, he misleads the people, he is an evildoer. All these charges were charges they brought against him with Pontius Pilate. They were smearing him with their lies. And it is his complaint then that we have here in verse 69. The proud have smeared me with lies. And in response to them, he says, I will keep your precepts 
with my whole heart. He will not let their smearing him with lies turn him aside from the purpose of his heart. And we should not, of course, either. But then he also, in verse 70, characterizes these enemies with the statement, their heart is as fat as grease. And the Hebrew here is a little bit difficult, but I think the New International Version at least gets the idea here, their hearts are callous and unfeeling. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling. This is what Charles Spurgeon says in his commentary on the verse, their hearts, through sensual indulgence, have grown insensible, coarse, and groveling. Proud men grow fat through carnal luxuries, and this makes them prouder still. They have no desire for anything beyond this world. They do not hear the law of God. Their consciences are seared. They do wickedness without remorse or pity. They're like very real sense, they're like the beasts that perish. In Psalm 17, David talks about the fat hearts of his enemies. Psalm 17, verse 10. And he says of them there, they have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth. As a lion is eager to tear his prey, and like a young lion lurking in secret places. And in Psalm 73, Asaph, another afflicted child of God, Psalm 73, verse 7 says of these kinds of people, their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart could wish, They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. So these these are men who are callous in their wickedness. Their heart is as fat as grease. And again, the psalmist contrasts himself with his enemies. But I, he says, delight in your law. This is the opposite of having a heart as fat as grease, that he delights in the law. And notice that he says this in this context of being uh, afflicted by his enemies. He says, in spite of what they are doing to me, I still delight in your law. So that's his affliction as he describes it in those two verses. Now let's look at, uh, in more detail, at his response to the affliction. And here we're going to be looking especially at verses 66, 67, and 71. First of all, he says in 66, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Now when that word judgment appears in this psalm, it almost always applies to the commandments of God, and it's almost always plural. The judgments of the Lord are his commandments. But here he's talking about his own judgment. Teach me good judgment. That is, teach me to have good judgment. He wants then to be able to take the commandments of God, to understand the commandments or judgments of God, and to 
be able to apply those commandments, to have good judgment about the things of his own life, the things of this world, his enemies and so on. He wants to have good judgment with regard to these things, but that good judgment is to be derived from and rooted in the judgments of the Lord. So teach me this good judgment. Give me your judgments in my heart so that I may have a good judgment and a good knowledge of what is going on and in, in this world and in my own life. And the reason he gives is, I believe your commandments. We find that statement probably a little bit strange. We talk about believing the word, believing the promises, believing the doctrines of the scriptures, believing the gospel, believing in our Lord Jesus Christ, believing in God, but we very seldom talk about believing the commandments. And yet, the only way we can receive the commandments, really, is by faith. The natural man does not receive God's commandments. He does not believe those commandments. He does not believe in the God who gave them. He does not believe, therefore, that the commandments, even if he holds to the idea that one should not murder, he does not believe that that commandment comes from God, and he will misapply and misinterpret it in many ways. His uh, law, as far as he is concerned, is not from God and is not God's commandments. He does not believe in God's commandments. But when God gives us his uh, gift of faith, then we believe those commandments. That is, we receive them as his word. And we can rightly say, I believe them. I believe that they are right. I believe that they are true. I believe that they apply to my life. I believe that the penalties described in them are accurate and that they will happen to those who transgress. He believes the commandments. He believes in them as the word of God, which they are. So that's his first response to this affliction. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. Don't let this affliction, which my enemies are causing me, distract me from my commitment to your commandments and my commitment to learning your commandments. Continue to teach me. The second thing he says that we want to look at is verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your words. So he talks about two different times in his life, the past and the present. He talks about uh, the past as a time when he was uh, in prosperity and the present as a time when he is in affliction. And he says about that past time of prosperity, at that time I went astray. But now, now in this time of affliction, I keep your word. And he's pointing us then to the Truth, which we all have experience of, that prosperity is not necessarily very good for us. 
that times of prosperity tend to make us lax, tend to make us forget about where our inheritance is, tend to make us um, attach our affections to the things of this world rather than to the things of the kingdom of God, and tend to forget that our life is hid with Christ in God. And we become very much like those uh, wicked men, the proud, his enemies, of whom he says, their heart is as fat as grease. Our hearts sometimes become fat in our prosperity. The psalmist says here, but now, now that that time of prosperity has passed and I am suffering affliction, now I keep your word. Affliction has changed my mind about the things of this world. And he says it even more emphatically then, in verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Now, of course, he doesn't mean that we should desire affliction. That's not the point he's making here. We do not desire affliction. Affliction is an evil and part of the curse of sin. But, What he is emphasizing here is our weakness, our tendency towards forgetting God in prosperity, and the need for God then to bring affliction on us, to remind us of the fact that our life is short and but a vapor, and that we need to fix our eyes on those things that are enduring. So he he looks at this affliction of his enemies, this smearing of him with lies that his enemies have been doing, and he says, that was good for me. It taught me to keep the commandments of the Lord. It taught me where my real interest, my real treasure, and my true life are. But there's another whole aspect then to his response to the affliction of his enemies that we have to look at, and that aspect is his talking here in this stanza about the goodness of the Lord. And there's a lot of emphasis on that in this passage. First of all, you find it in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. That's a confession of his faith. Others looking at him might well say of him, his life is miserable. No one's dealing well with him. If he has a God, that God must have forgotten him. His own confession in the midst of his affliction is, you have dealt well with me. Good you have done to your servant, O Lord. Just as he promised, too. He says that you have done good according to your word, and this is the word of God to his people. You find it especially in Deuteronomy. For example, just one passage out of many in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, verse 40. 
You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. God had promised that he would deal well with them as they kept his word. And the servant of God here in Psalm 119, verse 65 says, You have kept your promise. Just as you said, you have dealt well with your servant. He confesses then that the Lord has been good to him in spite of his affliction. Now verse 68, even more emphatic, you are good and do good. When he says you are good, we should take that to mean two things, I think. That word good in Hebrew has the same kind of scope that our word good in English has. It has very, uh, a very great variety of meanings, and there are at least two things that it means here. On the one hand, when we say someone is good, we may mean he is morally upright. And he's good in the sense that he doesn't do evil, he does what is right, he does what is good. And this is what the psalmist is saying here. You are good in that sense that you are upright, you are righteous, you are holy, and you do good. That is, you are good in your dealings with me, you are upright in your dealings with me. This is what God had to bring Job to confess, right? When after he afflicted Job so heavily. You are good, and I am vile. Whatever you do to me, whatever afflictions you bring on me, you are good. That is, you are upright, you are righteous, and you do uprightly and righteously with me. But that good, that word good also means kind or beneficent, doesn't it? And that's also here. Not only is he upright in his dealings with the psalmist, but he is beneficent. He is kindly towards him. And he's saying here, in my affliction, you are good. You are kindly. And you are doing kind and beneficent things to me. Therefore, teach me your statutes. Teach me those good statutes which you have revealed. Let them take hold on my heart. Because it's in those statutes that you show me your goodness. Especially your righteousness, of course, but even the beneficence and kindness that he's talking about. He begins those commandments with, I am the Lord your God. And then in verse 72, finally, he says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of silver and gold. Your law is good. Your law teaches me. Your law judges me. Your law chastens me. Your law corrects me. Your law afflicts me, but it afflicts me for my good. And therefore, I love your law, 
It's better to me than thousands of gold and silver. And of course, to close off our discussion of this again, we talk about our Lord Jesus Christ, who under affliction and under the curse of the law itself, loved the law. Pray, teach me your statutes, learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and therefore redeems us to love that same law in affliction to pray to the Lord, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes, and to continue, therefore, to ask the Lord, teach me your statutes. Let's go to verses 73 to 80 now. There's a a significant, significant contrast with verses 65 to 72 in this stanza, and that is that in verses 65 to 72, you have very little in the way of petition. The petition is there, uh, especially in verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge. And in verse 68, teach me your statutes. But that's about all you find in the way of petition in that stanza. Now look at verses 73 to 80. Verses 76 to 80, five of the eight verses are petition. Let I pray your merciful kindness be for my comfort. Let your tender mercies come to me. Let the proud be ashamed. Let those who fear you turn to me. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes. And another petition, even in verse 73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So it's a very petitionary stanza that we have here in this uh, stanza, uh, verses 73 to 80. Notice also the structure of this stanza. There's a pretty clear chiastic or pyramidal, if you like, structure to this stanza. In the center of the stanza, the center four verses, 75 to 78, he's talking about his affliction. I know, Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In verse 78, he goes back to the proud again. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, and, but I will meditate on your precepts. So the central four verses are about the affliction again, and we'll talk about those in a minute. On either side of that, the verse before and the verse after, notice he mentions those who fear the Lord and his relationship to them. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me. And verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me. And then on the outside of that, the first and the last verses of the stanza, petition mainly. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And carrying right on from that to the next step in verse 80, let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes that I may not be ashamed. So I think what we have to see here then is that The main idea is in verses 74 and 79. Those who fear you will be glad. Let those who fear you turn to me because I have hoped in your word. 
think that's the main idea. He wants the ones who fear the Lord to turn to Him, to see in Him an example of obedience and hope in the Word of the Lord. So we're, let's look at the central part of the uh, stanza first, those four center verses, and then look at the verses on either side of it. This is about his affliction then. And he begins by talking about the judgments of the Lord. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right. And there that has to do with the commandments of the Lord. The judgments of the Lord are his commandments. Those commandments are God's determinations about what is right and what what is wrong and the penalties that will be attached to disobedience to them. They are called his judgments because he has determined what is right and what is wrong and he will judge those who do not do what is right. And the psalmist says here, I know, Lord, that your judgments are right. That is, they're all upright. There's nothing erroneous about them. There's nothing evil about them. They are right judgments, correct judgments. And they are upright and righteous righteous applications of those judgments, even to me. So that he goes on then to say, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He's thinking then about the fact that the Lord has come to him and has laid his heavy hand on him, has afflicted him in whatever way. We don't yet know here in this stanza what that is. But the Lord has afflicted him and his confession to the Lord in this affliction is, your judgments are right. In faithfulness, in faithfulness to your own righteousness and in faithfulness to me as well, you have afflicted me. It's a a very difficult response for us to make, of course, to affliction. To experience sometimes very severe affliction and to be able to say to the Lord in that affliction, your judgments are right. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. And notice then in the next verse, 76, let I pray your merciful kindness, or that merciful kindness is loving kindness, be for my comfort according to your word to your servant. So he's got a series of words here about the Lord's uh, dealings with him. Right, faithful, and now loving kindness. And it's very important, I think, that we see that what the psalmist is saying here is don't just deal with me in righteousness and in faithfulness because if that's all I know from you, then it will be very bad. That might well destroy me. But mix your righteousness and your faithfulness with loving kindness. And then, in the affliction you bring on me, I will have comfort. 
So he wants righteousness and loving kindness, righteousness and mercy mixed in order that he may have comfort in his affliction. And of course, this is exactly what our Lord has done for us in his suffering on the cross. He has brought to us both the righteousness and the loving kindness of the Lord for our comfort. And this, then, according to your word to your servant, that is, according to the promise you have made to me. And he really carries on the same idea then in verse 77, let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Mercy is a synonym of loving kindness. Let that, he says, come to me. If, it's, if you deal with me only in righteousness and faithfulness, I will die, I will perish. But if you mix your righteousness with your mercies, then I may live. And by living, I may be able to keep that law in which I delight. And then finally, about his affliction, verse 78, and notice how he goes back to his enemies again, to the proud. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treat me wrongfully with falsehood. We don't need to say too much about that. We've talked about what the, the proud are doing to him, who those proud people are. But what he's saying here is the proud are afflicting him as well. And I think we should recognize that he's not saying, on the one hand, the Lord is afflicting me in this way, and on the other hand, the proud are afflicting me in this way. What he's saying here is, the Lord is afflicting me, and here are his instruments for my affliction. The proud, who are uh, treating me wrongfully with falsehood. He looks at what the proud are doing to him then, and he says... That is the Lord's doing. The Lord is afflicting me. Just as Job, when Satan afflicted him, said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not talking about two kinds of affliction, two separate afflictions. He's talking about affliction that comes to him from the Lord through these proud men who are his enemies. And then there is certainly implied, if not explicitly stated, that the Lord's work and the Lord's purpose overrides the work and purpose of his enemies. His enemies intend him no good. They want to do harm. But the psalmist says, you are good and do good. Your judgments are right. In faithfulness you afflict me. If we may go back to the previous stanza. So it's then in that context of this affliction then, which is a heavy affliction, that he begins to talk also about those who fear the Lord. So the two parties he's dealing with. On the one hand, the proud, and on the other hand, those who fear the Lord. And he says of those who fear the Lord, they will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. 
These, these faithful ones, these um, ones who fear the Lord, will look at him and will see that in his affliction, he, his hope remains unshaken. And his obedience remains unshaken. And they will be glad. They will be glad for him. That they have found in him one who is a brother. One whom is an encouraging example and a comfort to them in their own afflictions. They will be glad for themselves as they uh, take this brother into their fellowship and as they uh, uh, feed on his own example to them. And they will be glad in the Lord whose work of grace they see in him and in themselves, therefore, also. And then he turns this into a prayer in verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me. So first it's, he just says, they see me, they will see me and will be glad. Here he says, let them turn to me, those who know your testimonies. Let them consider me in my affliction. Let them see how I have responded to this affliction, that I have kept your testimonies in spite of it that I have confessed your faithfulness, your righteousness, and your loving kindness in this affliction. Let them see all this. They know your testimonies. So he looks to the party of those who fear the Lord as ones who can learn from him and the party to whose company he wants to belong. And then on the ends of the stanza, verses 73 and 80, he prays for himself. He prays for himself especially so that those who see him, those who fear the Lord and see him, may indeed see that good example of hope and obedience that he wants to set before them. He says, your hands have made me and fashioned me. And he refers in the first place, I think, to his creation in the beginning, when God formed man out of the dust of the ground. But he probably has in mind also his recreation by the Lord, by which he has become a new creature before the Lord. You have made me and fashioned me to be your servant. Now give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Fill my mind and my heart with the knowledge of your commandments. And then carrying on with that petition to the next step, let my heart then be blameless regarding your statutes. Bring me to the state of perfection. Give me a heart mature and complete in your ways so that I may not be ashamed before those who fear you or before you. Now, the, those words of verses 74 and 79 apply with special force to our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his affliction, when the proud treated him wrongfully with falsehood, said, let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies. We see him in his affliction delighting in and keeping the commandments of the Lord, hoping in his word. And as we see him 
We see him also in such a way that he revives us, that I may live and keep your law, causing us to walk in the ways of the Lord. May God bless his word for us.